We're going to begin tonight with a true story. On the last day of July 1941, the sirens of Auschwitz announced the escape of a prisoner. As a reprisal, ten of his fellow prisoners would die. A long, slow starvation, buried alive in a purpose-built concrete bunker. All day, tortured by heat stroke and hunger and fear, the men waited as the German commandant and his SS assistant walked between the ranks to select, quite arbitrarily, the chosen ten. As the commandant pointed to one man, Francis Gomenicek, he cried out in despair, My poor wife and children! At that moment, the unimpressive figure of a man with sunken eyes and round glasses in wire frames stepped out of line and took off his cap. What does this Polish pig want? asked the commandant. I am a Catholic priest. I want to die for that man. I am old. He has a wife and children. I have no one said Father Maximilian Kolbe. Accepted, retorted the commandant, before moving on. That night, nine men and one priest went to the starvation bunker. Normally they would tear each other apart like cannibals, but not so this time. While they had strength, lying on the floor, the men prayed and sang psalms. After two weeks, three of the men and Father Maximilian were still alive. The bunker was required for others, so on the 14th of August, the remaining four were disposed of. At 12.50pm, after two weeks in the starvation bunker and still conscious, the Polish priest was given an injection and died at the age of 47. On the 10th of October 1982, in St. Peter's Square, Rome, Father Maximilian's death was put in its proper perspective. Present in the crowd of 150,000 people, including 26 cardinals and 300 bishops and archbishops, was Francis Goenicek and his family. For indeed, many had been saved by that one man. The Pope described Father Maximilian's death by saying, This was a victory. A victory won over all the systems and contempt and hate in man. A victory like that won by our Lord Jesus Christ. When Francis died aged 94, his obituary appeared in the independent newspaper. It spoke of how he'd spent the rest of his life going around telling people what Maximilian Kolbe had done for him, dying in his place. He had been his substitute, and Francis spent his remaining days trying to express his gratitude. Tonight we are walking again onto holy ground. We are remembering once more that Jesus is our substitute. But Jesus' death was even more amazing than that of Maximilian Kolbe 
For his suffering was not just for one man, but for every single person in the world. It was for you and for me. And love really doesn't get any greater than this. We have been reading John's Gospel for more than six months now. Let us briefly recap where we have got up to. In the first 11 chapters, we have read of Jesus performing seven great signs. He's turned water into wine. He has healed the official's son from a distance. He's enabled a lame man to walk. He's fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. He's walked on water. He's given sight to a man born blind. And in the passage that we read last week, he has raised Lazarus from the dead. Seven incredible signs, each one pointing us towards who Jesus is and what he came to earth to achieve. He really is the eternal word, the son of God, the chosen Messiah. He came to bring cleansing and healing, forgiveness and life. He came to bring salvation in all its fullness. After each of these signs, we have seen more and more people coming to believe in Jesus. After seeing the evidence with their own eyes, they've grasped the truth and put their trust in him. Yet at the same time, as each sign has gone by, the religious leaders in the land have become fixed harder and harder in their opposition. Our reading tonight begins in the immediate aftermath of the raising of Lazarus, the most dramatic of all of the seven signs. And in response, we're going to see those positions entrenched even further. Sadly, the road to the cross that takes up the rest of the gospel starts here. But of course, we know that it's not all sadness from this point on. For it is precisely through the hatred of the Jewish leaders that God's salvation plan is going to be progressed. And tonight, in these verses of chapter 11, we're going to get a surprise insight into how all of this is going to work out. Jesus is going to become our substitute. From this brief passage, I'd like us to see three important things. Jesus came to our world to deal with sin by laying down his life. Let's take each one of those steps in turn, starting with Jesus coming to our world. At the beginning of our passage, we got a vivid reminder of the political reality in first century Israel. The truth was that there was a great dark cloud enshrouding the land and that cloud was the fear of the Romans. Rome had taken over more or less the whole of the Middle East about a century before Jesus' day. If you had walked through the average village or town, you wouldn't have seen too many Roman soldiers. But there were whole legions of them stationed just a few miles north in Syria. Legions that the governor of Judea could call upon for help at any time. Sadly, this has happened within living memory. Historical records tell us that in 4 BC, there had been a rebellion in the land led by Jewish zealots. 
There was a riot in the city. And this led to the Roman army marching in. In their wake, 2,000 Jews were crucified in full public view. This then was the situation in the land. There was this uneasy peace, a peace held together by the terrifying threat of violence. Now, of course, the Jewish leaders of the time longed to be free from Rome. They longed to be able to order the Jewish way of life as they wanted, without having to do what Rome said. But they were not stupid. They preferred this semi-type of freedom that Rome granted them to the devastation that would follow if a major rebellion sprung up. And it was this fear that led the various groups to take the positions that they did. The chief priests decided that it would be safest to collaborate a bit with Rome. They were the social elite, they got to run the temple, they felt they could maintain some sort of power for themselves if they were friendly and accommodating to the enemy. The Pharisees took a slightly different direction. They decided to keep quiet and just concern themselves with matters of the Jewish religion, something the Romans had very little interest in. Two different approaches, but trying to meet the same end, keeping this uneasy peace in the land. Suddenly, into this tense situation, come the extraordinary stories of what Jesus has been up to. And the religious leaders are worried. They are very worried. They fear a gathering of mass support. They fear a rally or a march to the city. They fear a protest that Rome would want to crush. If the troops came in, the city would be destroyed. Now, of course, we know that Jesus had no intention of leading a revolution like this. A few weeks ago, back in chapter 10, we heard him announce himself as the good shepherd, the one who would lay down his life for the sheep. He's hardly likely to tell those sheep to take up arms and follow him into battle, is he? No, Jesus is going to win his victory in a very different way. But as the Jewish leaders had not listened to what Jesus had said, they didn't know that. And to be honest, there was real substance to their fears. Now, why is this background important? It's important because it shows that Jesus really did come to our world as we know it. The world of empires and tyrants, wars and violence, oppression and despair. The gospel is not a fairy tale. It is history. Literal, factual history. It really happened. Jesus came and walked on our planet in all of its political mess. He became human and he suffered the same pain and anxiety that the people of Ukraine and Yemen and Syria know today. And he did this for one reason. He did it because he loved this world so much, he wanted to save it from all its brokenness. He wanted to rescue it and restore it to the great beauty and peace that God had always intended. 2,000 years ago, Jesus, the Son of God, gave up the majesty and the safety and the comfort of heaven and came 
to our broken world. That is the first point. The second point is this. Jesus came to our world to deal with sin. There are some telling words in verse 48. We've just said that the fear that the Jewish leaders had of Rome was a very real one. There was substance to it. Yet at the same time, we need to see that alongside that was something a bit darker. Driving the leaders' fears was also the very human trait of selfishness, greed and pride. Yes, sin is present here as well. The Jewish leaders have received their report of what Jesus had done to Lazarus. And in response, they say this. What are we accomplishing? Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Notice those last words. The Romans will take away both our temple and our nation. Our. Can you see? Yes, the chief priests and the Pharisees, they're concerned about the people and they're concerned about the nation. But underneath it all, they are much more concerned about themselves. Their position, their power, their control over the people. And if you think back through all that we've read so far in this gospel, this is why they've been against Jesus right from day one. This is why they've been against him, despite him doing some truly beautiful and extraordinary things. They have deemed Jesus to be a threat to their authority. They have been angered by the fact that he's taken the attention of the people off of them and onto himself. And over recent weeks, we have seen the Jewish leaders do everything they can to try and stop Jesus. They've confronted him in the temple. They've challenged his teaching. They've tried to discredit him. But each time Jesus either wowed the crowd by doing another miraculous sign, or he's outthought and outmaneuvered them in a debate. In truth, despite all their efforts, they have got nowhere. And their resentment has grown as a consequence. It is this selfish concern for personal power that now means that even though Lazarus has been miraculously raised from the dead and there was a whole crowd of eyewitnesses to the fact these leaders are not concerned about examining the evidence. They're not concerned about whether Jesus is authentic or not. They have just become hardened in their view that he must be disposed of at all costs. It has been rightly said that at the heart of all the problems in the world is the problem of the human heart. We are selfish, greedy, and want more and more for ourselves. This is sin in its rawest form, and this sin has literally infected everyone and everything. It was sin that had led Israel to be in the political position that they were. It is sin today that still leads to corrupt governments and businesses, abuse and oppression, poverty and lawlessness in society. It is still sin that leads to ordinary people, good, ordinary people, like most of the people on this island of ours, to shutting their eyes to Jesus, despite the mountains of evidence to his truth. 
sin is what causes the damage. It is a pollutant and a poison. It's a power that enslaves us and wrenches us from God's best. It is sin that leads to all the death and destruction in the world. And in this passage, we see yet more evidence of it. And it leaves us in no doubt that Jesus came to our world to deal with sin. That then neatly leads us on to our final point. Jesus came to our world to deal with sin by laying down his life. It was with utter cynicism that the high priest Caiaphas makes his suggestion in verse 50. He is doing nothing more than trying to couch his own thirst for blood in terms that seem honourable and befitting of his high position. He's trying to get away with murder by playing the political situation. But despite his motives, as he speaks out, John says that he has become an unwitting prophet for the nation. Let's listen again. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. It is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. Oh, how right he is. Jesus would die for the nation, executed in the manner reserved for despised rebels. But this death, John, as won't just be for the nation, it would be for a much larger company. Indeed, it would be for all of God's children, wherever they might be on the earth, even here on Isla in 2023. Jesus is going to be our substitute. On the cross, he is going to give up his perfect life to death and give it to us. On the cross, he's going to take our sin onto himself and die under its load and consign it to the grave forevermore. Jesus is going to die so that we might go free. Everything in the gospel has been leading to this moment. In chapter 1, John the Baptist announced Jesus as the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. In chapter 2, Jesus hinted that his body, the true temple of God, would be raised three days, but only after it had been destroyed. In chapter 3, Jesus told Nicodemus that he'd be lifted up like the snake in the wilderness and those that looked at him would receive eternal life. In chapter 6, Jesus announced himself as the bread of life and he said he would give up his flesh for the life of the world. In chapter 10, he said that as the good shepherd, he would lay down his life for the sheep. All the way through his life, Jesus knew why he'd come. He came as our substitute. All along, he had known where things were headed. Yes, he'd come as king, but his throne on earth would be a cross, not a gold chair, and his crown would be made of thorns. 
I find this strange little passage a fascinating one because suddenly we see Jesus' true vocation mixing with the political machinations of the Jewish leaders. There they are, out plotting for the worst. But God has planned for the best. And soon, very soon, that plan will be enacted in full, just as God wanted it to be. And of course, what better time of year for that plan to be completed than at Passover, which is what our passage finished by mentioning. Passover was nigh, the great Jewish festival of liberation. At Passover, the Jews remembered how the killing of the lambs had led to the freeing of the people from Egyptian slavery. By the blood of the lambs painted on the doorposts, the people were saved from death. Or so it will be at the upcoming Passover as well, but on a much, much greater scale. When Jesus' time comes, his blood will be shed on the cross and there will be enough power in that act to free the whole world from its slavery to evil and sin and death. So we reach the end of our passage and we have pieced together the great truth of the gospel. Jesus came to our world to deal with our sin by laying down his life. He is our substitute. He takes our sin from us and gives us his righteousness. Without Jesus, we are heading for death. With him, we are heading for life. We are all sinners. Every single one of us, corrupted by the world in which we live, needing a saviour. And Jesus is that one. Don't turn him down. There will be no other. How are we to respond to this? Well, of course, we are to believe, to repent of our sin and step out in faith to follow Jesus. And we are to announce it, to tell the world about the substitute Jesus. We do it with our words. And we also do it with our actions. Actions like those of Maximilian Kolbe. This is the good news of the gospel. And it's for all the world. And we're to play our part in spreading it. <laughs>